0: It's the Quotidian. It's episode 19 with Dr. Becca Tarnas. Welcome back to the Quotidian Podcast, I'm Bradley Dennis. In the world of astrology, the name Richard Tarnas is well known. His book Cosmos and Psyche broke ground in establishing a hybrid of Jungian archetypal psychology and a contemporary version of astrology that includes rather than repudiates modernity. Perhaps less well known but certainly formidable in her range and scope of knowledge, is his daughter, Becca Tarnas. Becca is a scholar, an artist, and a counseling astrologer, and an editor of ARCHI, the Journal of Archetypal Cosmology. She received her PhD in philosophy and religion at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and her dissertation was titled The Back of Beyond, The Red Books of C.G. Jung and J.R.R. R. Tolkien. She now teaches at both Pacifica Graduate Institute as well as the California Institute of Integral Studies, as well as several other online educational platforms. She's published one book thus far titled Journey to the Imaginal Realm, a Reader's Guide to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. We spoke about the intersections of creativity in her work as an archetypal astrologer, about how astrology positively impacts the world today and what astrology holds for both the skeptical mind and the believer alike. This podcast is produced by Carolina Commons, which teaches individuals, teams, and communities how to stay connected to their creative powers and to use these energies to transform themselves and the world. A majority of our work is focused on helping young people recapture their attention and to connect to meaning in an increasingly distracted world. We need your support to continue making this show and to offer our classes and content to those who need it most. So please take a moment, visit patreon.com slash carolinacommons and consider joining our membership or to make a generous donation of any amount to this important work. Thank you. And thank you again, as ever, for being here and for your creative presence in this conversation. And now, please enjoy the soulful intellect of Dr. Becca Tarnas. So, Rebecca Tarnas, welcome to the Quotidian. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Wonderful. How are you in general? You know, uh, since COVID started, I really like to start off just by kind of asking how people have made it through this very unprecedented <laughs> fermata in, in our lives. How, how have you weathered everything?
1: Um, Well, that's a huge question. Definitely. I mean, it's been such a kind of intensely transformative period for many people. And um, my own life went through such transformations, to be sure. I um, went into the pandemic and um, married and uh, went through a divorce in that process and healing through that time. And, um, you know, since have developed another relationship. And fortunately, I'm blessed to feel very, very happy. So um, that's the uh, very personal (laughs) answer to it. But I think that is so much of what shaped um, my own experience of the pandemic amongst, amongst other things, you know, losses that took place directly related to the pandemic. Um, So it's been a time of Uh, certainly heartbreak and grieving in a variety Mm -hmm. of forms, but also of um, really leaning into what actually matters in life and um, finding what is beautiful within that and really deeply learning to appreciate what's right in front of me and what is around me and, um, yeah, so many of the blessings.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that you're undergoing a a pretty intensive creative process. Is that something you're at liberty to talk about? (laughs) Not to put you on the spot. I
1: I haven't made an official announcement of what I'm doing yet, but um, I'm taking some time away from the last seven years. I've been working as a a counseling astrologer. Mm -hmm. So um, I have, been seeing clients throughout that time as well as teaching as an adjunct professor. And I took a big step back, uh, primarily from from the counseling, but other commitments as well, uh, to do a deep dive into research on um the life and work of uh Stanislav Grof. Mm. And um Grof is one of the earliest pioneers in a psychedelic psychotherapy. Uh so that's kind of been my immersion into, um, his world in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways. And, um, that also informs my teaching as well. I I teach a course that includes an introduction to his work. So, um, yeah, that's, that's been my, my focus of late.
0: That's fascinating. And I, I won't press you too much. I'm not really familiar with Groff's work. What School does of of psychology does he gravitate towards? If you're looking at the sort of the hierarchy of or the the split of Freud and Jung, does he tend to come from one side or the other?
1: He's an interesting bridge between the two and very hmm. much his own uh, person as well. Um, so Grof is a uh, he's a, a Czech psychiatrist and. Um, was one of the earliest researchers to explore the heuristic and healing potentials of LSD psychotherapy. And so he originally started off very much inspired by um, Freudian psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. the, the book that changed his life. And I think he read in one sitting was Freud's lectures on psychoanalysis. Wow. But I, I would say that his work, much more aligns with Jung, um, because he through his research kind of developed and opened up a much expanded cartography of the psyche that Mm -hmm. greatly resembles Jung in the sense of an occlusion of the unconscious and so on. Um, but it, it includes more than Jung's does. A lot of his work has looked at the effect, um, of the perinatal process on on the individual. So the mm-hmm. the experience of being in the womb and gestating and then going through the experience of being born, this is something that was largely dismissed by um, many many psychologists and psychiatrists, I mean, even laughed at by psychiatrists, that we have any memory of birth. And right. what Groff found through his research is that um, actually we have um, a deep imprint and so uh, he, his psychology really opens up into these domains of the, the perinatal on the one hand and tr- the transpersonal on the other hand. So he's one of the founders of transpersonal psychology. So that's right. that's the vein that we would put him in. Yeah.
0: That's fascinating. Um, I'd love to at least reserve a space in which to investigate your creative process itself, if not necessarily the content to go into. Um, but first, just to kind of put a, some brackets around the conversation, you, as far as I can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, sort of identify as an archetypal um, astrologer and archetypal yes. psychologist. Um, can you unpack that a little bit for folks who might not be as familiar with, with the terms archetype, archetypal image, and, and sort of what that, what that means? In that context?
1: Absolutely. Um, Archetype is such a wonderful term. And um, those who come to it through a psychological background, say a Jungian background, might be more familiar with the term archetype in the sense of psychological archetypes. Mm -hmm. Or um, for Jung, he described archetypes this isn't fully the case, but to kind of simplify it, he often spoke about archetypal figures of the human psyche. So these archetypal figures are, um, you know, the great mother, the hero, the, uh, the wise old man, the shadow, uh, mm-hmm. the anima and the animus. I mean, these are very familiar. These are familiar friends of the Jungian, um, cast. Right. And, um, but Jung inherited the idea of archetypes from a very long philosophical lineage. Mm-hmm. He's really the person who brought it into psychology. And we can trace archetypes as a philosophical concept back to Plato, so back mm-hmm. to ancient Greece. Um, that pulls our story back, you know, two and a half thousand years. But Plato articulated an idea of archetypes as these eternal forms that are transcendent, they're perfect, they're sacred, and they're beyond this world. Mm -hmm. But the world participates in them. And so he he gives some very kind of concrete examples, such as um, some examples that I'll often give of this are, if you think about um, all the many trees in a forest around you, all of those trees whether they're um, different individual trees or the whole variety of tree species, um, they're all trees to the extent that they participate in this archetypal form, um, mm-hmm. what, what Plato called an idea or a form, capital I or capital F, right. of tree, like tree with a capital T, this tree-ness. Um, mm-hmm. Or you know, another example he likes to give of, of uh, horses. All the particular horses of different color, size, speed, they're all horses to the extent that they participate in the archetype of horse, the capital H right. or hoarseness. So in this transcendent realm, there's a um, this archetypal form of horse, this archetypal form of tree. There's more abstract forms such as beauty. So everything that we find beautiful, whether that's... Um, a blossoming flower or a sunset or a landscape or a beloved, everything we find beautiful is beautiful because it participates in the form of beauty. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Plato's conception of archetypes informs the history of Western astrology, uh, sorry, of Western um, philosophy. Mm -hmm. Obviously you can tell where I'm going with that, (laughs) that um, when it comes to Astrological practice, um, the some people have recognized that the qualities associated with the particular planets in astrology. Um, that they're actually their archetypes in their own right. Right. Um, so each one of the planets is associated with a particular kind of complex archetype or a set of meanings. Um, so we were just talking about beauty as an archetype in Plato's terms. In mm-hmm. astrology, the Planet Venus, for example, is associated with the archetype of love and beauty and attraction and desire and um, pleasure and sensuality, but also the arts, um, artistic creativity, um, all expressions of aesthetics and so on. You can kind of see how I'm using a lot of different words, but it's almost like they're metaphors for each other. They're describing this deeper archetypal principle. And so... um, I'm a second-generation astrologer, so I always have to situate myself in um, a familial lineage. And that lineage is um, my father, Richard Tarnas. He really developed this concept of archetypes in astrology. And that's because he had a philosophical background. He... um, you know, had been educated knowing um, about platonic forms and ideas and Aristotelian universals and Jungian psychological archetypes. And Mm -hmm. um, when he had his own encounter with astrology, which he was extremely skeptical about, um, that's its own story. Yeah. He, he started to recognize that, Oh, these are archetypes. And so um, the branch of astrology that he developed and that I've, um, along my own journey come to work within, is uh, very much informed by this archetypal perspective. So it's really complementary with Jungian psychology, with the archetypal psychology of James Hellman um, and others, because it shares that common ground of archetypal thinking or the archetypal perspective. Anyway, that was a long philosophical answer. <laughs>
0: that makes complete sense to me. I mean, if we think of an archetype as sort of a, I think, uh, I either heard you say this or I read Jung talking about it as sort of a a, a never fully filled vessel. That it's mm. that there that it's it's a form that while it's universal, it it takes shape differently for different people, you know, whether it, like you said, the archetype of the mother, we inform, we fill that vessel with our own experience of mother. And through that, what really I'm fascinated by, and this is kind of a strange question. This is kind of a chicken and egg question, but thinking about astrology from an archetypal perspective and looking at the planets and looking at, you know, for instance, the Greek gods and the pantheon there, which, which came first? Because essentially we're describing human attributes and these sort of deep human features, as it were, of the psyche. Did, mm. did, did the pantheon and the planetary connections come first? Or did the did the, the philosophy and 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 that the searching come first? I mean, how what do you know about the history mm. of, of astrology in those terms?
1: The the philosophy definitely came later. So um, we have first um, centuries before thousands of years, I'm sure, uh, before Plato and the Greek philosophers um, pulling ourselves outside of the the Hellenistic world for a minute and looking at a more global perspective. Um, So many cultures around the world have mythic pantheons, right. have a recognition of uh, the gods, and um, whether we look to, um, you know, Mesopotamian or the Babylonian world, or Egypt, or um, you know, the Norse world, or Celtic, or Mayan, or Yoruba, or you know, Hindu we can see these different pantheons. And anyone who Mm -hmm. studies comparative mythology recognizes that on the one hand, these pantheons, they're all unique. They're their own rainbow spectrum of uh, extraordinary figures. But there are common themes. Um, We often find in these different systems that there's a deity of beauty and love, for example, like Venus or Aphrodite or Freya or Oshun um, and so real. on.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: You know, or a god of war or a god of, um, of time or death or the underworld. Um, and so that's, I think, just it's part of the human relationship to the cosmos and a recognition of these uh, primordial principles, these mythic deities And then the association of those by many different cultures, again, with the sky, with Mm -hmm. the planetary bodies, you know, we have to, again, get ourselves outside of the language we use in our culture today, where we've codified the names of the planets with these Roman gods. Um, If we can kind of see through that and beyond it, this is not just a Greco-Roman system by any means. Um, So setting aside the particularity of the names... I think this is me putting a kind of theory on top of it, um, drawing from a number of different thinkers. I feel like I should walk around with a bibliography behind me <laughs> to cite all my sources, ever the academic. Um, but I basically, there's an ancient perception of the world that can perceive the ensouled qualities of... Um, of the physical world, Mm -hmm. that there isn't this kind of modern separation of um, the individual human being or the human mind from the world. And so with this kind of ancient form of consciousness, looking at the night sky and perceiving the planets, I think that it was actually a genuine um, ability to discern. You know, when you look at the planet Venus shining like this exquisite diamond on, on the Western horizon after sunset, Mm -hmm. you know that that's the seat of this deity of love and beauty. Or you look at red Mars, um, you know, tinged like blood in the night sky, you know that that's the seat of the God of war. Um, Jupiter, the largest planet glowing kind of that golden orange, um, just so fits the the king, the the royalty of the pantheon, and so yeah. forth. Um, so it I think it's a genuine perception.
0: And yeah. One. So I think what I was trying to get at with my question earlier is: so obviously, mm. all these cultures around the world have this experience of, say, the morning star or Venus coming up or being so present in in the morning sky or the evening sky, and seeing that. Um. Ha, this has always fascinated me, and I, I apologize I'm jumping around a little bit because mm. astrology often feels so accurate and so prescient but when i'm when i'm and I apologize when i'm thinking about this more mm-hmm. analytically or Logically, I'm thinking there's a a huge amount of projection that's going on. We see this star, we see Mars, we see the color, we associate those colors with things, but those are our representations of our own inner life, our own cultural life. Mm. Where does that, how how do we, this may be a strange metaphor. How do we square that circle of both the projection out of, but then seeing the influence that these things have on us? Where, how does that, it's fantastical and, and deeply creative. Mm. If I'm being honest, it seems like that making that leap, it it seems amazing to me. And, And I'm, I'm generally curious to know more about how that works and, and, Without you obviously, you know, getting into trines and quarterines and all of these sure. things, <laughs> will go completely. Yeah. Over my head. I hope that makes well, sense. The you
1: question. know, no, it, it does. And, um, y- you know, Jung, um, engaged with astrology and right. he was pretty quiet about it, he started exploring it in. Probably about 1908, but we definitely know he was looking into it in 1911 because he mm-hmm. wrote Freud about it. And he said, You know, I, um, I'm looking into this because I think that there's um, a great deal that we can learn about the psyche through uh, astrology. And by the end of his career, he was using astrology with all his patients. Mm. He was quiet about it because you know, astrology is considered the gold standard of superstition in a right. modern scientific culture. Um, and it, it's related to this problem that you're bringing up. And without kind of going into the whole history of astrology and how things evolved, um, post-Copernican revolution, where you have a clear recognition that the sun is at the center of the solar system, this image of the crystalline spheres of the planets circling the earth and the actual influences of the planets directly affecting what's happening on earth and in our human bodies and so on, all that's shattered. Mm -hmm. And so there's good reason to believe this shouldn't work. And so Jung actually at first thought about it conceptually much in the way that you brought up that, well, this must be a projection that, you know, we, we project as human beings onto the world, onto each other, Why not onto the planets? And that's um, there are actually many astrologers today that do view it through that lens Mm -hmm. and still find it very useful as a psychological tool. I happen to not be one of those people because I would situate myself more, you could say, in a later Jungian perspective. Um, Jung had to contend with this category of phenomena that didn't fit the projection category mm-hmm. and that was the the phenomenon of synchronicity right that when you've experienced certain synchronicities such as the the scarab beetle one that he tells in his essay that are so clearly not caused by the individual having the internal experience, and it's so exactly spot on Mm -hmm. with what the internal experience is, then you start to recognize the world itself is speaking to you. Astrology can really be understood in that same vein as synchronicity, that there seems to be a larger orchestration, uh, a movement of the planets and of the earthly sphere in um, alignment with each other. You know, it's very much like the Hermetic Maxim, as above, so below. And I think that's a clear. it addresses the issue of why science has largely thrown out astrology or won't even look at it, because mm-hmm. there is no physical causation there. Right, there's not, you know, uh, gravitational waves or nano beams or something that are causing the events. That's too mechanistic, mechanistic and materialistic and kind of deterministic as well from what we actually see with these correlations, where Mm -hmm. on the one hand, they're too precise, accurate, and consistent to just be projections, but they're also too nuanced and open to human participation and kind of poetically creative beyond what the human being could ever come up with to be physically caused um, yes. And so the synchronicity uh, perspective kind of holds both together in a really beautiful way that it's, it's not physical, it's not just human projection, um, but it's a recognition of the ensouled nature of the cosmos itself. So that I hope that helps answer. What it you're does. Absolutely.
0: And I mean, you're definitely speaking my language in terms of, you know, Jung and, and synchronicity and that and especially thinking about. Jung's work in the Red Book, which I know you've taken a great deal of time with, and the Mm. idea of the transcendent function um, in in this active imaginal process, how much of that, this intuitive image-based sort of liminal space, do you inhabit when you're giving, say, a, a reading, a chart reading for someone or an astrological reading? How much of that interplay you know there's obviously the the science of the chart and and figuring out where things are at a particular point in time and where you are relative on the planet but then you mm-hmm. as it really feels like an art to me of interpretation and familiarity with the archetypes and familiarity with the the images and how to how to relate those to the individual that you're working with. Can you talk a little bit about that process?
1: Absolutely. That's a great question. I've never been asked
0: that. Um, Well, (laughs) I
1: would. (laughs) Um, No, I, I love thinking about it in that way. There's a slight differentiation between what happens in a consultation and my own independent study of the archetypal principles Mm -hmm. by myself, kind of leading up to that, especially when I was first learning astrology, where I would say there's a great deal of um, learning who these planetary archetypes are through various non-ordinary states of consciousness. Um, through different modalities, such as active imagination or holotropic breathwork or sacred medicine, where you get a kind of direct um, or as direct as we can get perception of the archetypal principles. And so that then informs what I'm bringing into a session so that, let's say, somebody has a um, a moon-Neptune aspect. I already have a very deeply felt sense of who the lunar archetype is and who the Neptune archetype are. And I've also got a good sense of how they combine um, really from two streams of knowledge. There's the more intellectual uh, technical side, because, um, you know, I've in terms of reading what other people have written about those combinations um, research into uh, individuals who have that combination and what they've you know, self-reported, what other astrologers have compiled about that. Yeah. And then my own kind of felt intuition of it and my own direct experience of that combination when say I'm going through a transit of that. I think a huge part of being a good astrologer is doing your own self-study, tracking your mm. own transits, studying your own chart, letting life teach you astrology, not just the books, yeah. and then see how they check out together and so all that comes into the session (laughs) empirical knowledge exactly um i think a lot of people don't think that that takes place in astrology but it really is it's you know testing that again and again and again um and so in the reading itself let's say I, i meet someone with moon neptune it's a combination i would say largely it's all of that intellectual knowledge and my own experience coming together. And I'm in a more rational place yes. when I'm in the session. Um, plus for me, I think it's really important just to be holding the space for the person. Right. Um, and so the less of being in an imaginal place as you were bringing up and more in a place of emotional attunement okay. where I'm being sensitive to, well, how is this? Landing for the person because we're going into very intimate material here, Um, and then sometimes there'll be flashes of that more kind of imaginal um, perception that comes into how I speak about it. So there's a lot going on at once Mm -hmm. when you're giving a reading, Um, but I would say more of the you know being in a an imaginal state you could say is taking place for me as a researcher outside the consultation room, whereas Mm -hmm. in the consultation room, I'm really there as a translator of these things and as someone holding the space for, for the client.
0: I see. Yeah. That's fascinating. And Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to talk, there's two directions I really want to go. And one is obviously about your creative process and how this work affects that. But the other is that there's this, this clear split Um, in the psychological world between sort of the clinical cognitive neuroscience school and then the schools of depth psychology uh, to the point that the APA does not recognize this as as a category of study. I actually, after I finished my MA, I went, you know, to join, get my student discount on the APA site. And they said, what did you, what did you get your degree in? And I'm going through all of these lists and there's cognitive and there's, you know, pretty much everything under the sun, but absolutely nothing in the realm of, I mean, the word unconscious not, is not even mentioned hardly on their website. Yeah. What we're talking about now with the sort of pseudoscience perception uh, of the established sort of scientific world and psychological world of of astrology, how do you... what do you make of this distrust and where do you see that going, especially where we're at kind of in this postmodern moment?
1: Mm. I, I do see this split as in some ways, it feels like it kind of carries the split between um, enlightenment thinking versus romantic thinking Hmm. that um, if we go back a few centuries and, um the western european lineage at least um that you have on the one hand the enlightenment thinking that is very um devoted to you know reason the mind the intellect um the scientific quest to know
0: the subject object split yes. exactly
1: subject object split that's a great way of putting it um causality direct causality cause and effect and I think that that split has really grooved in to mm-hmm. psychology and psychiatry and psychotherapy. And so where depth psychology has gone is carrying much more of the romantic spirit, the devotion to soul
0: mm-hmm. and
1: to art and poetry and um, you know creative principle. And those two, that split between the Enlightenment and Romanticism, uh, being carried forward, it—they're each carrying two sides of the same coin. Neither sure. one is fully developing the picture, and actually being able to have a marriage of those two would be a far more fruitful endeavor um, but they both both sides have to stop um, demonizing and alienating the other right. yeah. um and and that's a tricky thing for each of them to do because one side sees the other as dabbling in subjective nonsense and the other side sees sees the former as um being too wedded to a kind of materialist behaviorist paradigm that leaves no space for interiority right. um, and therefore dismisses the vast amount of extraordinary knowledge and research that's being brought forward. Um, there are some interesting areas where they can start to merge, but I do see those splits still taking place. You know, For example, within um, the resurgence of psychedelic research that's mm-hmm. taken place in the last um 10 15 years yeah. that has um brought back in a lot of the interior realm psychedelics do that but it's also been very kind of wedded to a strictly um scientific and kind of neurological model and so then again you lose the peace around soul and spirituality and mysticism and so forth that's a kind of key component of um of that work um i have a feeling that that split just represents a very long process that we're in the middle of and that may not be within our lifetime it may not be within our grandchildren's lifetime but i have a feeling those (laughs) will weave back together and they'll start to see how they're the inside and the outside of the same phenomenon.
0: And I know your, your dad's book, um, Cosmos and Psyche, covers some of that, both polarization, but also sort of anticipating where, where that's going, looking at, at in, a, in an astrological sense, which I, I think is a fabulous way to look at it, too. Um, it's interesting, too, given you know, that all psychology lives in this subjective relationship between two people. Right. And regardless of, of how you want to, what side of, of those two coins you want to come down on, that it is a subjective relationship and there is necessarily interiority to it. So it's, it seems, are you familiar with arts-based research as a
1: uh, Only a by function?
0: name. Um, Dr. Susan Rowland, who is at the Pacifica Graduate Institute, where I know you teach occasionally has a, mm. a wonderful series of books focusing on Jungian arts-based research, which describes exactly this sort of uh, interiority as, as scientific knowledge. And um, I highly recommend looking at some of that stuff. I think it might be another Avenue towards the work that you're doing with Groff and, and the psychedelic Renaissance work. Mm. Um,
1: Oh, that's wonderful! I love Susan she's Roland and her work.
0: Wonderful, so, yeah. She's been um, she's been great. Yeah. I got to know her pretty well the last two years. Um, so, mm-hmm. we're kind of headed towards the stars in this conversation, which I mean, obviously, have clear implications for the development of human consciousness. Just because we're confronted them with them on such a constant basis. Um, why is mm-hmm. astrology, and in particular, archetypal astrology? important now?
1: Well, you know, an example I can bring up is in 2020, early 2020, as the pandemic was starting to unfold, um, many people turned to astrology when they realized that they weren't getting Real answers from anybody else. This larger sense of what is going what on. Is happening? Um, <laughs> what the hell is happening? Yeah. Like the world just um, feeling like it was turning upside down. Yes. And Astrologers had been speaking about this upcoming alignment that was going to be dominant through 2020, uh-huh. and uh, was especially peaking in in March and April of 2020. So right as the pandemic is getting initiated, um, and the the larger outer planetary alignment that was taking place during those years, so before the pandemic, 2018 through. The end of 2021 mm-hmm. um, happened to be an alignment that was in the sky when both world wars started, when 9-11 happened. <laughs> um, these intensely pivotal and very dark periods yes. in human history, that each one of them uh, radically changed the world uh after it occurred um certainly both world wars did that in a lot of ways 9 11 did that too um there's other examples but those are ones that you know i think most people can relate yeah. to um and so it's the same alignment it was an alignment of um, the planet saturn with the planet pluto and um so astrologers had been seeing this coming in and many people had even said, is there going to be world war three? Um, is there going to be something like the great depression uh, or the great recession, both of which happened under Saturn, Pluto alignments. Um, of course, we're definitely seeing uh, an effect on the economy at this yeah. point. Um, and So I think a lot of people turned towards astrology because it was offering these answers and could give a historical context and a sense of meaning to what otherwise feels terrifying, meaningless, and confusing. Um, And so what I think is quite valuable at this time that uh, archetypal astrology can offer, particularly a study of world transits, which is what I'm speaking about Mm -hmm. right now. So world transits are looking at the positions of the planets relative to each other um, as it relates to the earth as a whole, Uh so collective events. There's different uh, areas one can study in astrology, like your birth chart, personal transits, other things like that, which is also very um, useful. And insightful but world transits gives us an orientation of what's happening on the world stage what's happening in politics what's happening yeah exactly what's happening with everyone and it gives us a sense of what are the archetypal players at this time when did they start kind of getting activated and how long is it gonna last that's one of the questions <laughs> that often will yes. come up like how how long do we have to put up with this? Or if it's something that feels more uplifting or more positive, um, when can we look forward to that? Or what creative endeavor can I take on during that time right. when it does feel like there's more of a an opening? Um, and so I think it's tremendously av- valuable for that reason because we can start to live within the rhythms of the cosmos again, right. um, and that's something we become very disconnected from in um, our contemporary, you know, uh, societies. So, um, reconnecting to the rhythms of the cosmos and of course reconnecting to the rhythms of the earth as well, um, couldn't be more essential to our survival at this point. We've become so disconnected and we see the results of that with, um, you know, the effects of climate change and, um, all the various ecological crises that are unfolding worldwide. It's um, a lot of it's happening faster than those models predicted. And um, the astrological overlay, we can look back historically on the one hand and see what's happened with different sets of transits, but also when we look forward and we recognize the conditions through other arenas of study, Mm -hmm. such as, you know, climate modeling or population growth or economic models, bringing all that into play, um, why not bring in another way of knowing on top of that to help us see when um, different events may unfold, not in a concretely predictive sense, but in this more archetypally predictive way.
0: it's fascinating stuff. And one of the things that, that comes to mind, you know, we started the conversation, uh, talking a little bit about individuation and the transcendent function, which is Jungian terms for, I'm paraphrasing wildly here, but the individual's process throughout life of integrating, uh, their archetypes or archetypal images, I guess, as it were to, to kind of become wholly realized what your purpose is and sort of become the purpose, the person that you were meant to be, I guess, was, is one way of putting it. Mm. How, how does, and I think I have an answer to this, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. How astrology, both sort of the world astrology, but then also this, the personal astrology, how does it aid the transcendent function in that way? Mm. And how, how can it inform people in that, in that process to learning about themselves and, and and moving further mm. on that that life path to self-understanding and mastery?
1: That's mm. a it's a beautiful question. And I think that when you bring astrology and depth psychology together, it, it really is a, a profound marriage between the two. They support each other mutually in mm-hmm. some extraordinary ways. And what astrology offers to the depth psychologist is a kind of map of the psyche. So if you mm. go in and you're working with your your Jungian analyst, probably a lot of the work you're doing in the early sessions, you're identifying what are the archetypes that are at play within you, within you that who's dominant, who's problematic, right. um, who's easier for you to work with. And that's a lot of the work is that identification process. When you look at your yeah. birth chart and you read it through an archetypal lens, there it is it's laid out and you even can see those things that you're not going to admit to your therapist until like seven years. (laughs) It's there. And like, like what? Like what? Um, (laughs) Well, if um, I'll just be very personal. Um, Yeah. I have a Mars Pluto conjunction in my chart and Mars Pluto can um, correlate with expressions of very deep, um, rage and anger but pluto can also have the effect of really suppressing that like pushing it down into the underworld um mm-hmm. it can also sometimes bring up shame around expressions of anger or around um like physical or athletic expressions um and so often the way that i present myself my kind of persona you don't see a lot at least I mean, maybe one does, but, um, I like to think that one doesn't necessarily see the volcano that's in there. Right. Um, and that's one piece of who I am. It's not, of course, the full picture, but that's really stayed kind of down in, in realms that I haven't wanted to bring forward. But because I... And so
0: that's, that stays true to the sort of archetypal picture of what you might explore in a Jungian therapeutic session.
1: Exactly. That's what you're saying. Um... Uh-huh. So it it mutually supports and it's like, oh, I see you have this Mars-Pluto aspect, but you don't have maybe outlets in your life where it feels like you can really bring that forward. Um, And so Mm -hmm. it becomes a means of, as you're saying, you know, with the individuation process, living your chart more fully or living the archetypal complexes um, within you to the greatest and most balanced extent so that my Mars-Pluto can happily coexist with my Venus Uranus Neptune. And I, you know, can, um, recognize them both as equally valuable instead of one getting elevated and the other one getting suppressed. Um, so it just provides another tool that can really, um, help with that process of, of bringing in, um, the full picture and potential. And one other thing I'll say on this just before bringing that thought to a close, is. Um, I think some people can come into astrology thinking that it's limiting, that it's going to say, um, well, this is who you are, and you know, that's kind of who you're right. determined to be. This is your fate. And I would rather um, support the perspective that what astrology shows us is um, our archetypal potential. And that we're the ones when we consciously freely participate in that who can let each one of those archetypal complexes blossom to the fullest extent. And what may feel like a part of us that holds us back or is a shadow component or something that we love to project out onto other people, we can mm-hmm. own that and we can allow it to come forward in a way that actually feels life enhancing. Um yeah. And so personally I think that astrology is extraordinarily extraordinarily liberating for that reason. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it almost sounds as though the potential in identifying those archetypal powers as either represented on your chart or in sort of the Jungian framework of analysis if viewed as just sort of the two-dimensional pastiche that a lot of people see it as, can promote some of that, maybe the tendency to dismiss as this is pigeonholing, but what you're talking about is an invitation to actually explore the full dimensionality of each of those things, whether it's the shadow, whether it's the animus, whether it's the puer or the senex or whatever these these roles as they appear both in your life, but also as represented by the planetary alignments and, and positions. Exactly. That's, it's fascinating. stuff. It's absolutely mm-hmm. fascinating stuff. I'm curious how your work as an astrologer informs your life and your work mm-hmm. as, as a scholar and a creator.
1: Mm. Um, I, at this point, astrology has so much become the, uh, the water i swim in that it literally informs everything i have to uh, are you a water sign um my son is not in uh, a water sign it's actually in a fire sign sagittarius but um I do have and some. I don't mean
0: to be dismissive of that. I just, it, no, you mentioned water and that, that image and <laughs> metaphor is so poignant. I just thought, well, maybe.
1: But. Well, let me affirm your intuition that I do have um, Mercury and Mars and Pluto um, all in a water sign. Um, so, and my descendant so there's definitely water well represented in my chart. Um, I'm a very kind of I fire see. water person with a little bit of air, a little bit of earth. Um, but whether it's the water I swim in or the air I breathe it in astrology mm-hmm. informs, um, everything that I do, honestly. Um, if I'm reading a book or teaching a class, um, even if astrology has nothing to do with, I'm, what I'm teaching, I'll often be looking up, you know, the chart of the person who's written the book or the charts of the people the book might be about. If you go through my library, you'll see little planets in the margins. That's kind of how I'm doing my research along the way. Um, Anytime Mm -hmm. I watch a film or listen to music or um, go view, you know, paintings, I'm always, if I can get the accurate birth data for for the creators of that. Um, So it's ongoing. It's, it's part of my um, almost like a aesthetic enjoyment of life. And um, my partner and I talk about astrology all day long, um, whether it's, about each other's charts or our current transits or the world transits. Anytime we read the news, it's always kind of taking it in through this lens. So um, sometimes Mm -hmm. I forget that it's actually doing research. It's just, it's at this point becomes so integrated into how I live. Um, So I can't really separate it out, oddly enough. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It, It reminds me of, are you familiar with the Salome podcast? Uh there's three, three Jungian analysts and astrologers, I think mostly out of Portland, but somewhere they, they, they've created this session, uh, or podcast rather where they're combining astrological readings with going through the red book and reading and doing these deep mm. analyses of, of the red book.
1: Wow. And
0: it's absolutely fascinating. I th- I think you'd really Enjoy it. Appreciate Salome podcast. Thank
1: you for letting me know about that. I hadn't heard of it, but um, I'm so glad to know someone's doing that. I mean, Liz Green, um, the Jungian analyst and astrologer took that on in her book. um, Mm -hmm. uh, What was it called? Jung's. The the astrological world of Jung's Liber Um, Novus. I think she was the first one really to do that uh, close analysis and, when I was doing my research on the Red Book, I was, you know, looking at his transits and so forth throughout. Um, but she, she took it to a whole other level. So I love knowing that someone's doing a kind of um, serial, in-depth exploration of that because I think it really was part of Jung's intention to have the Red Book um, be seen through an astrological lens. It, it's, yes, yeah, it's baked into it. That's great. It has
0: that flavor, doesn't it?
1: It yeah. certainly does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that's fascinating. Mm. Well, uh, as, as we're winding up the time here, um, I always end the podcast by asking our guests uh, one final question, which you mm. can take either as big or as little as you want. What is the question that's not being asked right now?
1: Oh, wow. That's so good. Um mm. You mean in a kind of mainstream sense? Uh,
0: that's how I say it. But again, the wording is, it's to you to, I have a friend, a good friend of mine who I just interviewed, who's a, a sports writer. And and he, when I asked him the question, he said, it's funny because he, he ends his interviews the same. He's like, what's the question I forgot to ask you? Or what's the question I haven't asked you yet? Mm. Or should I ask you? And so the question that's not being asked yeah. in any context, in any framework that speaks to you
1: the question that that came to mind is, why are we not asking in a more public way why do we keep othering each other?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: why do we keep splitting off into these tribalistic factions of um, you know whether it's division by political party or race or gender or any other ideology um, yes. why are we not seeing every person on this globe as human beings and why are we not let's extend it further why are we not seeing every being on this globe as um a being inherently worthy of of life and um free freedom from unnecessary suffering um but yeah i i would I would like to see more questioning around that of why is it that we're so quick to blame and other and split off and divide on every side. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah.
0: And do you see a role for your work in helping to bridge Hmm. that gap?
1: Gosh, I hope so. (laughs) Um, I mean, (laughs) I think that the the work that many of us are doing in terms of, um, you know, whether it's deep psychological work or You know, deep introspection and and self-transformation and relational transformation that by owning the parts of ourselves that we don't like, that we repress or that are part of our shadow, um, we do stop projecting them out onto each other. And that we can really lean into our shared humanity, our shared um, inheritance as earth part of the earth community as cosmic beings, um, I hope that it can contribute to that in some small way. I
0: think you're well on your way.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Well,
0: Becca Tarnas, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time and for being here. Uh, Is there anything that you'd like to promote or tell us where we can find Mm -hmm. you um, or anything that Mm -hmm. we should be looking out for?
1: Um, well, you can find me at um, my website. It's very simple to remember. It's becatarnas.com. So it's just my name.com. And I actually do have something fun to promote. Uh, it's always exciting when that comes around. I'm going to yeah. be um, co-teaching workshop for um, an organization called the Astrology Hub. And I'm co-teaching it with my father, um, which is very fun that we get to do this together. Um, And it's called Your Astrological Initiation. And so it's geared for um, every level of uh, astrological interest, whether you're a complete beginner or uh, deeply involved in astrological practice. And it's mm-hmm. really some kind of basics, but also guidelines in terms of holding the astrological worldview and ethics and ways to approach astrological research and study. and. Um, yeah, it's something that we've talked about doing in some form for a long time and um, we were invited to do this for the Astrology Hub. So it's um, that's taking place in September. Um, I think it's okay. September 21st with a follow-up Q&A on the 27th. Um, but they haven't started officially promoting it yet, um, or at least not terribly widely so more will be coming out about that I'll post about it on my website and social media and all those places.
0: <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, if we can we'll put a link to it in the description down below the Wonderful. The podcast and the video. Thank you. Again, Becca, thank you for the generosity of of your work and your time. Mm. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you as well. You're a wonderful interviewer. I so enjoyed this <laughs> conversation and your questions and um yeah, I just wish you the absolute best as you continue with this beautiful project and everything that you're bringing forward to, uh, to contribute to the world.
0: Thank you very yeah. much. I appreciate you. that.